0: That was great. Thanks, guys. Just great song, great lyrics, beautiful to hear. It's just amazing what they're a response to, really. The, uh, the gift that God gave to us kind of brings out those kind of lyrics and responses to, to his gift to us. It's, uh, it was my birthday Lisa promised me that no matter what I did, she'd cheer me on. She said, look, I'll, I'll look after you up there. It's my birthday yesterday. 32. Thanks again, Lisa. I turned 36. <laughs> and uh, Jonathan this morning was talking about how Valentine's Day makes him nervous and how he, he kind of worries about what, it, what his wife's thinking. That's probably what makes most men nervous. But, and what to give her and all that sort of stuff. Well, birthdays tend to make me nervous just kind of wondering what it is that my kids have made or constructed or, or thought out to give me. And you kind of wonder what sort of a smile you're going to have to put on or um, what you're going to endure as you accept their gifts. But yesterday, as I was still lying in bed, Kate and Amy and Lockie and, and, and Sandy kind of behind them, ushering them in, come piling into the room there and uh, jumped up on the bed. And as I, I looked at the present... I didn't even need to care about what was inside it because their gift was wrapped in Carlton football paper. (laughs) It had our, our club emblem all over it and you know what? I did not care what was inside that little box anymore because when I saw what it was wrapped in, I knew my kids, knew my heart and what really speaks to me. And I I knew that there couldn't be nothing but good stuff inside that box when it was wrapped in that paper. And now, you know what? Even when they said, you know, Dad, here's your presents. We really love you. They didn't even need to say it. I knew they loved me. They'd wrapped it in Carlton football paper. (laughs) And inside was a pair of Carlton football socks with our club emblem on them too and a Carlton coffee mug so I was very, very pleased. <laughs> tonight we're going to look at giving and giving gifts, I guess, and uh, what, what they're wrapped in. And uh, our, our passage tonight that we're going to be looking at is in Luke uh, 20, 45, starting at 45 and we're going to move through to verse 4 in in 21 while all the people were listening jesus said to his disciples beware of the teachers of the law they like to walk around in their flowing robes and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor and at banquets but they devour widows houses for the and for show they make lengthy prayers Such men will be punished most severely. And as Jesus is is saying this, he looks up. And as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. But he noticed something else. He also saw a poor widow who put in two very small copper coins. And he stops him and he says, I tell you the truth, he said, This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she has given out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. I want just pray before we, uh, we have a look at this passage. Father, we want to, we want to thank you for your gift to us. Well, tonight as we sit around the communion table and we, we reflect upon just what you gave us, Lord, loved us in such a way that you, that you surrendered your son, Lord, and uh, you held nothing back from us. Your gift to us is just immeasurable. Lord, we want to say thank you for that. Lord, we want to thank you that we can, can come into fellowship with you and uh, participate in that, Lord, and, and learn more about you and what it is to love you and, Lord, what it is to give to you in an honouring way. Lord, I always pray tonight that uh, you would use uh, your passage, my words, to speak uh, to people. Amen. Well, a passage tonight finds us looking through the eyes of Jesus. It's the, it's the Passover festival and everyone is in town. It's a chaotic, hectic, you know, vocal scene. There's a lot going on. As part of the Passover, people are in town to celebrate the deliverance of Israel by God from from their captivity in Egypt. In New Testament times, it was quite a spectacle of excitement and devotion. People, primarily the Jews of of the diaspora from all over the Mediterranean and the greater Roman Empire, had descended on the holy city, Jerusalem. It was a relentless throng of activity as the temple and the surrounding areas... Turn into a marketplace of offering and commerce. Amongst this scene, the religious leaders make their, their presence known by their acts of great piety and religious benevolence. They seek to endear the people with their great acts of charity and, and worship. Now Jesus sits himself across from the temple. I'm sort of thinking he's probably serving a, a suspension from when he Drove everyone out of the t- temple earlier on. He's on a, a two-week suspension for unduly rough play. Can't go back in there. So he's sitting across from the temple now. A bit like we would if we were down at the plaza having coffee at the Donut King or some of us like to drink at Gloria Jeans. Just watching the activity of the place. Observing all that happened. And in this position where he's sitting, Jesus has good vantage to take it all in. And in doing so... He not only noted the people's actions, but he assesses their motives. As Jesus takes in the unfolding drama of the day, he begins to teach his disciples about the hearts behind some of the participants of what's going on. And he says, beware of the teachers. And as he goes into his speech, something stops him mid-sentence. Something makes him take note. The rich are putting in their gifts as they do, but something caused his heart to stir. A widow put two small coins into the temple treasury, her appearance obviously giving her away, the distinctive appearance of poverty even hard to hide amongst the activity of the day. Both Mark and Luke describe her as one who is in dire need. She's not just a widow, she's a, a needy widow. Jesus' capturing of this widow's offering is not just a quaint little moment for us just to look at and go, wow, you know she really did give, didn't she? Her offering was the equivalent of one four hundredth of a shekel. That's a day's wage. In our terms, she gave one eighth of a cent. So basically, she gave nothing at all in a material sense. But it's not the size or the content of her gift that I want to look at tonight, but the why and how she gave. It's this inspiring heart of uh, an act of worship, if you like, that has stood as a challenge and a benchmark of what a fully devoted heart to God will surrender to him. Her motivation for such giving could only be responsorial love. There's no other explanation for what she did. You know, her little coins would have barely been heard over the noise and the din of the day. The temple would be no better off for her gift, but she is immeasurably poorer. She has given all she has to live on. The contrast between the two, the ostentatious giving of the leaders, And if you like, the kind of pathetic, innocuous offering of the widow could not be more graphic. But God's response to the two could not be more radical. One He loves, and the other He despises. And we're going to be looking at both sides tonight. We start by the two types of giving that we're going to look at. The first one is religious, self certifying, and the second is generous, God honouring giving. Religious self-certifying giving, what does it look like? This is a a form of giving that comes from a heart that seeks to please itself first. Its prayers and its offerings seek the attention of the people rather than God. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 2 to 3 say this. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, Inver- further on down in verse 3 it says, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, I even give my life, if you like, and have not love, I gain nothing. This is one of Paul's finest moments, I reckon. He's addressing religious trappings. You know, it looks good, sounds good, but... It has totally abandoned genuine Christian ethics. Now, what does this loveless giving look like? Well, I like the way Amos puts it. When I was doing my Old Testament studies last year, I was really struck by this little book. Amos is an 8th century prophet and God's speaking through him and he says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with this noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never ending stream. Here in Amos, the prophet is at pains to expose the nature of Israel's pious worship, and that God knows that it's only skin deep. Acts of the head and not of the heart. Amos reveals what God thinks of gifts given out of self-seeking motives. They are despised and they have no place in God's heart or his kingdom. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, we read something else. And this is this is actually about sowing generously is the title here. So this might sound a little weird at first. Remember this whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good works as it is written. He who scatters abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now that's a it's actually a verse that talks about good giving and the results of that. And that's there's a point there, but there's also a point being made in this verse. It is not to just reassure us of a prosperous future if we give to God. You know, if that's your thinking, it comes out of this verse. That just exposes an idolatrous worship of material gain behind your heart. But there is a, a sense, if you like, of divine retribution, not pros, prosperity, contained here. You see, the motive behind our giving reflects the character of our heart. God loves a, a cheerful giver, someone who gives from the joy of their heart, and then he blesses them. But you see, the opposite can also be implied see, God holds his blessings back. He holds his heart back. If you keep your heart and you hold it back in what you're giving, he, his blessings are that, are the participation in his kingdom. That's the joy that we get out of giving to God. But when we, when we offer up, as, as written in Amos, just shallow, skin-deep offering, that, that blessing of participating in God's work is gone. Yes, you gave your money. Yes, you ran the best ministry in Wodonga District Baptist Church. You held a study group in your lounge room every Wednesday night. But you know what I really wanted? Your heart, a cheerful heart. When you gave, I wanted it to be as a response from your heart, wrapped in it with love. I did not want to be treated like the tax man or like Santa Claus. You know they're there. You know you have responsibilities to them. And you just do them to keep out of trouble or to get your wish list. In your passage tonight, Luke 20 verses 45 to 47, there's a strange thing going on. Jesus is condemning the religious leaders for their pious behaviour. These are are people who are the benchmark of what it is to be religious. They are looked upon with respect. But Jesus says, beware of this. Why would he do such a thing? Because Jesus does not want us to model our lives on activity. Don't be fooled by this. Yet looks good on the outside. But Jesus puts some sobering perspective on it. Such men men like these who, who Jesus has seen into their heart and knows that their actions are just skin deep, will be severely punished. In Matthew 7, 21 to 23, it goes on, and says, you know, didn't we drive out demons and prophesy and perform miracles? And didn't we give to the building fund? And didn't we run kids' church? Or didn't we help fill at the back? And Jesus says in Matthew 23, I tell them plainly, People who are just given like they give to the tax man. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. You know, God does not measure by activity or by quantity. His measuring right is more of a barometer that detects the spiritual condition of a heart. Poor giving is dead to God. If the heart behind it is not in relationship with him and loving him, all your actions are dead to God. They amount to nothing in the heavenly currency exchange, if you like. When you sure it'll go on and it might do something material on this earth, but when it comes to God's kingdom and its divine currency, it basically the exchange comes down to nothing. Well, I got a little note here that everybody'd be feeling pretty Heavy by now, feeling like every action that we do would be is being called into question. A little worried about what people think of us. So let's look at giving that honors God. In that way, I can reaffirm you. You know, this is uh, this really is quite a generous church, and the the hearts of the people here are generous hearts. One of my favorite outworkings of that is that little basket that's in our foyer there, and every. Sunday I come in here and it, it's, it's full to the top. That's got nothing at all to do with what happens inside this building. That goes over to the admin centre and helps the community. That, that really speaks of our heart, doesn't it? God honouring, generous giving. Here's what generous giving looks like, if you like. God honouring giving. And the passage that we're going to look at is 2 to uh, Corinthians 8, uh, verses 1 to 7. You know, Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, it's got a lot about giving in them, but in particular this little section here. Now, if you've been in the coming of the morning services, you should just about know this verse off by heart. Um, Paul says we're to excel in, 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 in these areas. He reads like this, he goes, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely of their own. Of their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints, and they did not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and, and then to us in keeping with God's will. Paul cites the Macedonian churches as an example of what it is to give generously beyond even our, ability, our abilities. And it kind of reminds us of where we started tonight with the widow. Listen to this they, the poor, Macedonian churches, in verse 4, pleaded urgently that they might participate uh, in the work to the saints. But this is how they went about it. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And then from this position came the principle that we should all adopt. Or perhaps we should adopt the principle from the start in giving ourselves first to the Lord. And let's call this the Macedonian principle. It goes like this. From their abundance, from the abundance of their poverty, you know what, whatever your situation might be, you want to apply it to yourself. Their situation was poverty. Every, every situation has its own little clause attached to it. But from the abundance of their poverty, fueled by the riches of their joy in God, this led to a wealth of generosity. That is the Macedonian principle that the riches of joy in God just kind of make everything else fade into the background. And from the joy that comes through knowing God, it leads to a wealth of generosity, a heart that just wants to give. Paul says this sort of giving is a response to the understanding of God's grace. Giving is not just an expression of compassion for the needy, nor is it a simply a reflection of our own concern because You don't have to be a Christian to do this. But it should be a reflex action of our own joy in the enormity of God's gift to us in Christ. You know, by participating in the collection that Paul was gathering that he's writing about in Corinthians, the Macedonian churches were experiencing and seeking the kingdom of God. In other words, they had traded the treasures of this world for a greater treasure of the kingdom of God. Their great joy comes from humbly knowing that they are co-workers with Christ, no matter their situation. They were living out. They were living, working out of Matthew 6, 19-21. Their hearts were Jesus-focused and kingdom-orientated. And that is where they had stored up their treasure. You know, the community of God is one place in the world where you are not excu- excluded for your poverty. In fact, you are honoured. Is a community where you are not despised for your wealth, you are, res- you are respected. And right through the socioeconomic spectrum, Christians are invited. None are excluded. In fact, they're expected to come. None are excluded from God's ra- gracious gift of honouring Him in loving service and sacrifice. Do you want to know something? Thanks. God does not need your gifts. But his his grace is such that he has given us the opportunity to participate in his redeeming work here on earth. God has no need for material things, as he is the creator of all matter. To view our giving as helping God is a bit like Charles Sturt coming up here and suggesting that Jesus should enrol in a science major just to prove that he has creative abilities. Yet God loves to give. His greatest gift is, the, is his revelation through his son, through his son's life and death and resurrection. And a further gift to us is to invite us to participate in giving to him that which is an overflowing from a grateful heart. We're invited no matter our position to take part. 1 Corinthians 16 1-2 uh, to two reads, Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it so that when I come, no collections uh, will need to be made. And in 2 Corinthians 9-7 it says this, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Paul is talking about strategically setting aside this money. This is what he's talking about in this case. Why? So that when he turns up, it's not a case of just pass around the hat and let's see what we can shake out for God. It's more about giving the gift of giving a permanent priority. What we offer to God should hold value in our hearts and in our lives. It should not be whimsical or spur of the moment. This is poor for it reflects a lack of concern and dangerous because if it's not thought out, it could lead to unhealthy giving. You know, we should sit down with our families or our girlfriends or our dog or our cat or whatever it is that represents your decision making and gives some prayer and priority to how you will give and what you will give in your resources. The Macedonians, the widow, gave as a result of a profound experience of God's grace. The widow's gift was abundant and crazy, but it was planned in her heart. She would have contemplated it with every step to the temple. And as I said, the temple was no richer. For the widow's gift. The temple would not have even missed it if she had just walked past and clung on to her two little coins. But in giving them, she is immeasurably poorer. She is without any human or material resource for survival. Yet in handing over her offering, the joy of participating in the community where God is being honoured by contributing her two coins. She is communicating an appreciation and trust in God that few experience. The 18th century commentator J.A. Bengal put the widow's act like this. She gave two. She could have held on to one, but she gave everything. And in doing so, was silently saying to God, I love you. Here is my heart. One coin. I love you. Here is my life, two coins. It isn't much, but it's all I have. Have you ever seen, or have you ever experienced this? What the widow has experienced, or what the Macedonians experience? In my life, I've lived to see a great example of what it is. You know, as far as value to a corporate structure goes, my mum was a bit like the widow, worthless. High maintenance asset, so to speak. A divorcee, a single mother of four kids with no income and no time, you would think, for ministry yet she still managed to devote herself to it. She was trying to raise a family alone and put them through school, as well as the fact is that she had returned to uni herself. I was tough at our place, you might say. If ever there was someone who could have hardened their heart towards God, I'm sure my mum would have been forgiven. If ever there was anyone who could have held back and thought of their situation first. I'm sure God would have understood. One of my, my, my memories of my childhood. Is of a blue jar. That used to sit in my mum's room. And in it she had her offering. And the only time that jar was ever empty. Was on Sunday morning. When we were driving to church and she had its contents to give. Do you know, absolutely, without any doubt, there were times when that jar could have been emptied on a Monday or a Wednesday or a Friday. But my mum knew what it was to consciously dedicate to God. She had experienced Christ's love in her life and was responding. You know what, she could have dipped in to that jar and given God whatever was left at the end of the week. No one in this room could argue with her need. And while I remember times when my mum was angry and times when she was just in tears about our situation, I never once heard her question God's faithfulness. And yet what did she have to show for her devotion to God? Not much. Worth writing up in a a financial magazine. But my mum knew the joy of participating in a community of God here on earth that comes from the heart, that is given over to God. That was her joy. And even in her position, she could contribute. What does the widow have to show for her giving? Nothing that we know of. For all we know, she could have gone on her way. Just into the streets, slumped down in an alley somewhere and died. But you know what? When she gave from her heart, that moment at the temple, Jesus stopped what he was doing. And he looked up, He stopped mid-sentence and he said, hey, Look at this. You know what? When Jesus looked and saw my mum, he stopped mid-sentence. He said, hang on, you great multitude, you angels, you heavenly beings, you seraphim and cherubim that are here to worship me 24 hours a day. Just stop for a minute. You know, you guys were created to do this, if you like, and there's nothing wrong with that. This is your role in life, but look here. This one has surrendered. This one has done it voluntarily. She has pleaded to be involved. And she has given her heart to me. And look, inside that blue jar. You know what? What does he say of us when he looks at us? And your hearts surrendered to him, and he says, "Stop." There's kids' church, or maybe worship leading, or preaching, or bricklaying, or perhaps car parking, or maybe cleaning toilets. When you give your gifts wrapped in your heart, Jesus stops. And he looks and he sees. And perhaps you don't know it and you never felt it. But a gift that is drenched in your heart is pleasing to God. He stops, he notices, and it is effective in his kingdom. Why? Because it opposes the kingdom of this world and it crushes its grip on you. You're free to give. The widow put two small coins in amongst the thousands of dollars that we're going into that treasury? Which one stands in the gospel as a testament to God honouring giving? The one that was heartfelt. But when we give or serve just purely to serve our own identity, it doesn't even raise through the rafters. And at the end of the day, Jesus' response is this, I tell you the truth, I don't even know who you are. C.S. Lewis said, I don't know how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. And he went on later to say there ought to be things that we would like to do but can't because our charitable ex- expenditure excludes them. Put simply, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Have you given your heart first to Jesus, like the Macedonians, like the widow, like my mum? You know what? When you do that, that's not a show stopper. That's a show starter. Luke fifteen seven says, when one person surrenders their life to Jesus Christ, all heaven rejoices. You know, when we devote our hearts to God, and our, li- our lives naturally follow. And God's kingdom is advanced here on earth. Give your heart to God. This is giving that pleases him. Wrap everything you offer to him up in your heart. Father, I just want to just finish tonight by saying thank you. Thank you for all that you have given to me. Thank you for all that you surrendered to me. Thank you that you gave your heart to me, that you gave your son to die that I might know you. And Lord, my response to you is, I just give you my heart, Lord. I just want to honour you. And then take anything you can that comes in that. We pray that this would be a, a church, a family, a community that is just sold out to you in their hearts, that just wants to love you with, with all they've got. Amen.
1: What a great God we have and how could we but love him. It's, uh, it's true, true words to be singing together. Uh, just one more in very important thing is that uh, also an exciting new position is available for anyone who would like to apply church small small group leader position, uh, small group ministry leader position and uh, we're asking people who uh, feel like they would like to consider that. It's a 10-hour position and we're currently seeking someone who would be suitably gifted for that position. So if you would like a copy of the job description, you could see me or see Alan Cummins um, or drop in anytime any time at the church office and we're looking forward to uh, finding someone who could fill that uh, important role for our church, one that we're passionate and um, yeah, excited to be looking towards filling. So, If you could prayerfully consider that, and uh, if there's someone you know, why don't you ask them to consider it too? Um, I wonder if you have little children around you or if you've been around little children, maybe you've got your own kids or you've observed little children, you've probably seen this scene unfolding many times before. The older child gets a toy And perhaps it's a special little truck that he has. And he loves to play with this truck. Uh, The paint is almost worn off because of just playing with this toy over and over, his favourite truck. And then uh, one day, the truck's left sitting on the coffee table and nobody's touching it at all. And along comes little sister. Uh, She enters the room and she toddles up to the table and reaches over to grab the truck with her little hand only to have it snatched away by the gorilla in the family you know it's my truck he says and he doesn't want to part with something that's important now how many of you parents or other you know people who have observed this happening have said to the child hey you know just let her play with it and the child says oh of course no worries here you go sis You've got to be kidding. It never happens, does it? Uh, normally the response is, mine, it's mine, and they grab onto it. And sometimes you just about have to break the arm of the little boy <laughs> to get the truck out of the hand. It, you know, the, boy, the little boy doesn't want to break, it, it, let go of it. And the more you try to take that truck out, the harder and stronger his determination to keep it. That's an illustration of giving grudgingly. <laughs> you know, the remarkable thing is, though, many churches have this approach. They think the people that come to church don't want to give. So the role of the pastor is to just heap guilt on people and make them, you know sort of force them into a point where they submit mercifully and and give but you know what that's the last thing i ever want to do as your pastor that's the last thing that our church ever wants to do uh, why because uh, you know i know the more people put pressure on me the more i want to give a uh, grip onto what i've got you know like you walk along the, the grass and it says keep off the grass, the sign says. I never even wanted to jump onto the grass until I saw that sign. It would have just been better to not have the sign at all, wouldn't it? And sometimes I've been sitting there at the toilet and, it's, and it, at the urinal for men and it says, don't spit in the urinal. All of a sudden I start to salivate. I never, ever normally spit in the urinal. <laughs> and yet when someone tells me not to, my mouth starts to salivate. Yeah. I, I think it's the same when it comes to giving, isn't it? If we get pressure put on us, if people try and manipulate us or say, why aren't you giving more or doing that? You know, the first thing is I just don't want to give when people are doing that. It makes me want to grab hold more and say, no way. The other reason why it's just silly to, to, for a church or for people to do that in any way is because it's not how God wants us to give. He doesn't want us to give grudgingly. He doesn't want, so, so if I actually start to do that, I could be actually forcing you to do that. And that would be absolutely terrible. So today... I want to talk to you about giving freely to God and I want to talk to you about the way God wants us to give and I want to do it in such a way that the last thing you feel is that your pastor is saying give. Okay? Got that at the outset? That sound good? Why don't we turn together to this passage that we've looked at many, many times already. This is our fourth week on this and the last week we're going to be looking at this passage. Um, But 2 Corinthians chapter 8 we're going to read through the same passage again and then we're going to just look at one extra verse which is in the context of the passage as well. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 1 to 9 and then we're going to just jump over to another passage. Paul writes, Now I want to tell you, my dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done for the churches in Macedonia. Though they've been going through much trouble And hard times, their wonderful joy and their deep poverty have overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the gracious privilege of sharing in the gift for the Christians in Jerusalem. Best of all, they went beyond our highest hopes for their first action was to dedicate themselves to the Lord and to us for whatever directions God might give them. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and to encourage you to complete your share in this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, You have so much faith, such gifted speakers, such knowledge, such enthusiasm and such love for us. Now I want you to excel in this gracious ministry of giving. And I'm not saying you must do it, even though the other churches are eager to do it. This is one way to prove your love is real. You know how full of love and kindness our Lord Jesus Christ was. Though he was very rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. And if we just turn over now, and the passage uh, I'd love to just have a look at is 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Let's just look at that verse there. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Still in the same context, still talking to the church in Corinth about giving to the churches in Jerusalem. You must each... Make up your own mind as to how much you should give. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves the person who gives cheerfully. Good words, God's word, isn't it? Full of wisdom and truth. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, hey, you're excelling in so many ways, I want you to now excel in giving. And uh, we've been looking at this passage for a few weeks now and um, we're reminding that you know, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. And the reason he was writing was that initially Paul was a Jew and he was a Pharisee. And he was someone who was one, trained by one of the greatest rabbis of the day. And he was excellent at what he did. Whatever he did, he did meticulously and right and he was diligent in it. And when he came to Christians, Paul was really effective at persecuting them. Like he was out to to get them. You know, there was a time when Stephen uh, was was stoned to death because of his faith in Christ. And Paul was carrying the coats of those that were killing him. He was standing there carrying their coats. Uh, There were times when he was getting Christians and getting them thrown in jail. And he got a letter of approval to have the Christians thrown in jail, and he was on his way to Damascus to, to come face-to-face with these people. And instead of coming face-to-face with the Christians that he was going to persecute, on the road he came face-to-face with the risen Christ. And he saw a light and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that day on, uh, Paul's life changed around. Instead of being called Saul, he was called Paul. Paul. But instead of being wanting to persecute Christians, he became someone who was wanting to take this good news, this gospel message, and share it with other people. Now, as he was meeting with the risen Christ, God spoke to him and said, You know, I want you to take this message to the Gentiles. I want you to go to the Gentiles and uh, now this was a huge change in what was currently happening because currently the gospel was being preached to the Jews and the Gentiles you know they weren't really uh, the focus at this point so it was a big paradigm shift in the way of operating that was happening at that time a whole new way of thinking and when this happened it caused a lot of angst amongst the churches. In Jerusalem. And so they asked Paul to come in and to explain what was happening. So in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 8 to 10, we see Paul writing that he writes this in verses 8 to 10: For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as the pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given to me. And they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers and they encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued to work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've been eager to do, Paul says. So Paul goes before the leaders of the churches in Jerusalem and they say, what are you up to, Paul? He shares all what he's doing and they say, okay, we believe God's called you. We believe this is of God. We want you to go, go to the Gentiles, Take the good news to them, and we'll focus on the Jews. So, now at the time, the churches in Jerusalem were un- under lots of uh, problems. They had occup- they were in occupied territory, Roman occupied territory, and the Jewish people who put their trust in Jesus were suffering. They were no longer accepted by the Jewish community. They were, in a, no, they were now Christ followers. They were no longer accepted by the Roman people and they didn't have much money and they had so many people that had come to the Lord in recent times from the day of Pentecost that they were having to help and to look after them and so the resources were scarce. And you know, it's suggested too that there was a famine in Jerusalem at the time. So they were in dire straits. They were in hard time, the churches in Jerusalem. So when they said to Paul, you can go and share the gospel with the Gentiles in all these other churches that are much better off than us here uh, in Jerusalem, one thing we want you to remember is don't forget, don't forget the Christians here. Don't forget the poor Christians here from which the gospel has come. And Paul says, I was going to do that anyway. And then became the passion of Paul's life. He sort of started going around to all the churches, talking to them about them, you know, giving an offering that he could take back to the church in Jerusalem. And, you know, in 1, 1 Corinthians 16, he, he told them at the very first couple of verses that they were to put aside, the church in Corinth was to put aside a little amount each week. And when he came, he would take that money and he would give it back to the church in Jerusalem. And that was a year ago now, and Paul's writing a year later and saying, "Come on, guys, you said you were going to do this. I'm sending some people to come and get the offering, and when I want them to come, I don't want you to be, you know, not ready to give. I want it to already be ready so I can just take it and take it back to the people, the Christians in the church in Jerusalem." Why would Paul do this? Well, I reckon there's a few reasons. Firstly, the uh, Gentiles have been blessed spiritually by the faith that came from the Jewish people. So they were thrilled when they heard the gospel. And now they're saying, well, you have plenty, these have little. You know, Why don't you participate and help? It's only right, he feels. Secondly, it would have helped unity. You know, The Jews would have been feeling, hang on, what are the Gentiles getting the gospel for now? But then the evidence of their love for God being shown in helping them would have helped a lot to build unity amongst the churches. And I think that's why he comes and he writes this passage to them right now uh, you know, in 2 Corinthians uh, talking about the offering, the giving, the one-off free will offering that they were going to give. Now, um, we've talked about this over the last four weeks and we've been looking at uh, this passage in the context that it was and we've been looking at some of the principles. We've been pulling them out of the passage and we've seen that giving to God starts with giving yourself to God, you know. Uh, Romans 12 says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. If you give yourself to God first above everything else, you'll be a a, a great giver. And we see that in this passage, it it says there that they did, in verse 5, that they did even more than they'd hoped because their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. And that's what they did. And for us, we need to give ourselves to the Lord. They, They gave generously to God. You know, their deep joy and deep poverty overflowed in rich generosity. And last week, uh, we've also looked at the fact that they gave joyfully to God. They found wonderful joy in giving and helping. Now, this morning, we want to just spend the next few moments looking at the fact that they gave freely to God. Verses 3 to 5 in this chapter say, you know, they did it out of their own free will. These Macedonian churches who were part of the Gentile churches but were by no means wealthy. They were very poor and they were in dire straits. But when they helped Paul out and responded to his call for this offering, um, they were were really struggling. And they did it out of their own free will, Paul says in verse 3. They begged us again and again for the gracious privilege of sharing in the gift of the Corinthians in Jerusalem. Best of all, They went beyond our highest hopes. We're starting to know now that these churches in Macedonia were generous. They were incredible. In hard times, they gave joyfully and they gave without being forced. There was no pressure. No one needed to put pressure on them. They gave freely. And instead of being pressured, they pressured Paul. It says that they begged us again and again. They put the pressure on him, you know, give us the opportunity to share in the gift of the Christians, uh, you know, to the Christians in Jerusalem. And they described that opportunity as a privilege for them. For them it would be an honour, a joy to be part of what they were giving to. Now, I just want to be clear about some of the similarities of this passage and some of the differences, okay, because uh, I want, want us to get that clear. So, the similarities of the passage that we're looking at today is that um, you know, Paul was talking to the church in Corinth about a free will offering. It was a, a one off free will offering. And they were giving it uh, to the poor churches in Jerusalem. Now, the similarities are we're in the context of today bringing a free will offering and we're giving it not to the church, poor churches in Jerusalem. We're actually not a poor church at all. So the, the analogy drops down there. Okay. So we're not suggesting that you give it to us, poor church, this one-off free offering today. Actually, God has blessed us greatly over the years. Um, so just we want to make that clear, but we are giving today in a one-off gift over and above our regular tithes and it's free will and there's no pressure. You don't have to give to this if you don't want to, if you're giving your regular tithes and offerings, keep going. But one of the things they're saying, well, are we giving to the poor? Are we actually those that are giving to the poor because we're, you know, being blessed so much? And I say, well, we're not a poor church, but we do give to the poor. You know, last year we gave away uh, 600 and, uh, sorry $65,000 to other churches and to the community and to the people in Malawi and to people who are struggling on the land and to school chaplaincy and other things over and above outside of our own uh, ministry the 65,000 you might say to me hang on this building fund Jonathan it's 307,000 and you we only gave 65,000 Um, last year to people outside our thing and I'd say yeah we did so if you're comparing what we've given this year last year to what we've given away yeah it's disproportionate that we're 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 asking to give more to this than we gave away last year to other people but you know it's been nine years since our last building um, extension uh, eight to nine years and we've given Let's take the figure of sixty-five thousand down to fifty, and if we give fifty thousand a year for the last eight years, it's four hundred nine years, four hundred fifty thousand that we've given away. And the feeling that I have for us church is that we're just going to keep being more and more generous to people far from us. You know, I think we're just beginning to get a passion for Malawi and the people over there. We're looking at sending a, a team over there in the coming, you know, months. We're looking at um, continuing to impact our community. We've got pamper days for people that are struggling on the land. We've been helping people out through buying water. We've been people in our own community and our church that are struggling financially. We're helping them. So comparatively, 300,000 to 450, 400,000 in the past eight to nine years and all the future ahead, we're far more giving away than we're keeping for ourselves. Do you get the kind of thing we're saying there we can confidently give saying yes we're giving to the poor and we're also building extensions here that are not primarily for ourselves but for the future growth in children and in people's lives as they grow the the verse that we read extra the 2 corinthians 9 and verse 7 says you must each make up your own mind as to how much you should give Now, notice it doesn't say give what your pastor thinks you should or give so that you can live up to the expectations of your mother or father or your husband or wife. Uh, Or it doesn't say give so people can think you're fabulous. It, It actually says you must make up your own mind as how much you should give. And this is something that you do before an audience of one. You come before God and you prayerfully ask him. If you're married, you talk to each other and you talk about it and you pray about it together and you ask God together and you spend time asking. And God's not wanting to, with, uh, wanting to withhold from you the amount that he's wanting you to give. And he's not just wanting you to guess in the dark. Ask him and give to him what you feel he's calling you to give. And don't give to the church or to a you know, deficit that we need to make, give to God regardless because you need to because we want to be people that are generous. And the second part of this verse in 2 Corinthians 9 says, don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. And I just want to say as your pastor, I want to relieve a bit of guilt that you, you're not to give under pressure. You know, if you feel like people are twisting your arm, the scripture says, you know, when it comes to giving over and above free will gifts, over and above your regular giving, please don't, don't give if you're feeling like you're getting forced into it. You are to give willingly, not reluctantly. Because the Bible says if you give under pressure, it's not the kind of giving that God wants. Just to fulfil, you know, we've got this debt and we need you to match it. You know, it's not about that. It's about... Uh, It's not about you saying, you know, um, us saying we've got all these needs that the church needs. It's about giving to God, and you need to do that, and I need to do that, not for somebody else's benefit, but for my own. I want to give so that I'm not holding on or claiming ownership of my own things and saying they're mine, they're mine, they're mine, but I need to remind myself that everything I have belongs to God. And I give to invest in what God's doing in changing lives and eternities. And I do that freely, not because of any other reason, but that I sense God is laying it on my heart. And verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 8 says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not what he does not have. If the willingness is there, if the giving freely is there, the gift is acceptable whatever the gift is. That's good news, isn't it? I always feel like I would like to give heaps more than I'm able. I just feel so full of joy when I read that verse, you know. For if the willingness is there, if I'm giving and I'm giving, then the gift is acceptable if I'm giving it willingly and freely. You know, it reminds me of when the community of saints um, contributed to the building of the tabernacle. The words uh, willingness or free will just continually came up and were emphasised in that passage. In Exodus 35, it talks about the giving, and from verse 20 onwards, it sort of says, the whole community of Israel left Moses and returned to their tents. Um, you might. Why don't we open that passage, Exodus 35. Exodus 35. And if you look with me from verses 20 onwards, let me just read and point to some verses and just emphasise some of the attitudes with which they gave. It says in verse 20 of 35, So the whole community of Israel left Moses and returned to their tents. Then twenty one says, all those, all whose hearts were stirred and whose spirits were were moved, came and brought their sacred offerings to the Lord. They brought all the materials needed for the tabernacle, for the performance of its rituals, for the sacred garments. Verse twenty two, both men and women came, all whose hearts were willing. This is an over and above regular giving to the tabernacle, all whose hearts were willing. They brought to the Lord their offerings of gold, brooches, earrings, rings from their fingers and necklaces. They presented gold objects of every kind as a special offering to the Lord. Verse 26. All the women who were willing used their skills to spin the goat hair into yarn. Verse 29. So the people of Israel, every man and woman who was eager to help in the work, the Lord had given them through Moses, bought their gifts and gave them freely to the Lord. There's a freedom. There's a joy. There's a not under compulsion. And you know what happens in verse 36? Moses sent this command out to the people in, in, in verse 6 saying, bring no more materials. You know, we've got too much. Hold on to it. You're being just too freely and giving too much for us. We can't contain it all. It's amazing when people gave freely, and willingly. It was incredible. You know, um, the believers in Exodus were never told that all giving was voluntary. I want you to notice that they didn't. If they didn't, uh, they didn't tithe only when they felt led to. You know, in Old Testament time. They tithed no matter how they felt because it was their duty. God had commanded it. Um, But they did not have to give beyond this required amount. There was no extra that was required of them. And no one had to give to the tabernacle. No one was forced to to do that. And they gave to this worthy cause, this one time because they saw the need. And they wanted to help because their hearts were moved because God was speaking to them, and they were caught up in this spirit of divinely inspired graciousness. They just gave. They wanted to. They were already giving what was required. They already were giving freely. Uh, well, I look at this passage and then I flip back to the other one and I think, how did those Macedonian churches become f- such free givers? How was it that they just gave so much when they were in that situation? I ask how, and I think, well, I think because God had given them so much. I, I remember, you know, that verse, John 3 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave, that understood that God had given. And how did he give? Like, did he give uh, kind of begrudgingly? Did he kind of grab onto that truck, you know, and say, I'm not giving you my son unless you pry him out of my hands? Do you know what it says in Isaiah 53.10 in the New American Standard Bible? You know, it talks about he was led to, uh, you know, led like a lamb to the slaughter and that, you know, he didn't open his mouth. And It was talking about Jesus and his death. And it actually says in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. It's staggering. The Lord was pleased to to crush his own son. That's a picture of a God who's freely giving his son to us, not holding him back and saying, this is not what I want to do. He wanted to give him to us because he knew that it was the only way for us to have a relationship with him. It's interesting when Paul writes about the fact that Christ died for us. He talks about this being given freely. Look what it says in, in Romans 3 and 23 and 24. Let me read that to you. The NIV says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely. Freely. You know, just given generously and freely and without being forced by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. It reminds me of what it says in this passage that Jesus, though he was rich, in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. You know, It says at the start of that verse, you know how full of love and kindness our Lord Jesus Christ was. I get this picture of God just so wanting so freely to give to us his son, to give to us forgiveness, to give to us grace, to give to us his mercy, not withholding anything from us so that we could have life and have it to the full life in just a little bit. No, no, the verse says life in all its abundance. You know, just this abundance of life that God wants to freely give us through Jesus Christ. I think of Paul, a persecutor of the church, he became transformed when he met the risen Christ and he said afterwards, after that time and ministering, he said, for me now to live is Christ and to die is game. You can take my whole life from me because of the riches that God has given me. Because he's come and met me. You know, just to know him, I can die now and I'll go to be with him and I'm happy. He'd been so freely given to by God. Yeah, you know, the church in Philippi. One of these Macedonian churches started one day when Paul, who'd been transformed by the free, generous grace of God, lavished upon him, came and shared the good news with Lydia down at a river and she responded. And the Bible says that right there, Acts chapter 16, her and her family uh, gave their hearts to the Lord and were baptised right there. A church begins at Philippi. Uh, Just in the same sort of time, Paul and Silas are thrown in jail, and in the middle of the night, the, the ground shakes, the bars come open, and the jailer is just struck with horror. And he finds his prisoners have not escaped, but they're there, just sitting there. And he falls to his knees. They tell him about Jesus, and he is baptized that night after putting his faith in Christ. Freely. This grace of God that was given to Paul is now given to Lydia is now given to the jailer and his family who are all baptised and the church starts to grow and the church in Philippi are thankful and the church this Macedonian church are overwhelmed with thankfulness and just want to freely give and help what about you you've been transformed if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ for you You can identify with what it means to say, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You know, the difference between what we were and what we are is like the difference between night and day, death and life, slavery and freedom, judgment and grace. And all this has just been... Lavishly, lavishly, freely poured on us. The only way it comes is through God being pleased to crush His Son, allowing Him to die, dying for your and my sins dying the death that we deserve, dying the penalty that we could never pay ourselves. It's no wonder in Matthew 10, Jesus said to his followers, freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. Many people think that becoming a follower of Christ is recognising that you're so worthless that you spend the rest of your life grovelling on the ground. Um, You know, just in complete humiliation. (laughs) When we recognise that we're so worthless and that Christ has paid the complete price for us, We receive his grace fully and stand forgiven, justified, made right in his sight. And we're no longer forced to give. We're no longer forced to kind of live by rules anymore or try and just do religion anymore. We're set free to soar. We want to be generous in sharing freely what God has given to us. These people were overwhelmed with thankfulness for what God had done. I think as a church together, we are just so overwhelmed with what God has done for us and continues to do for us as his followers. And as we come to these moments now, as we come to give, uh, we come to give freely, we come to give you know, joyfully, we come to give generously, and we come ultimately... Because God has given himself to us. God's gift to us is new life. Our gift to him is what we do with it. This morning as we come to give, let's pray and say to God afresh, take my life, take all that I am, You've given me everything I have. Take all that I am, all that I have, and use it for your glory. Let's pray, shall we? God, this morning our heart just cries out and says, take us, Lord. Take the gifts that we bring today. Take our lives afresh this morning. Take our thankful hearts. Take our lives that were once lost but are now found, that were once dirty but now are clean, that were once dead but are now alive. We give our lives back to you. And we give now saying, God, do what only you can do through the future of this church through the building of its extensions. And God, would you be glorified in this we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.